0: This is section 109 of Mark Twain, The Complete Interviews. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Interview 109. Mark Twain interviewed. First impressions of India. Englishman, Calcutta. February 8th, 1896, page 5. Mr. Macaulay, a titled lady, is said to have once remarked to the essayist, I am so surprised by your appearance i thought you were dark and thin but you are fair and really mr macaulay you are stout some such surprise was afforded an englishman interviewer who called upon mark twain at his hotel yesterday afternoon he was as familiar with the portraits of the great humorist as any and from these he had gathered the impression that the original was stern dark and a martinet in appearance in reality he found him fair with a ruddy complexion, a gray mustache, and a pair of shaggy eyebrows, whose somewhat severe effect was counteracted by the friendly blue eyes which twinkled beneath. A man of middle height, with erect, well-set-up figure, and abundant head of gray hair, Mark Twain paces up and down the room in a Leonine fashion as he converses. He had just arrived from Benares that morning, and told his interviewer that he hadn't been able to leave his room since he entered it through a wretched cold which he had caught on the journey i can't go out at all he said in his measured american way i have got to stick right here and nurse myself i haven't been able to go out to the tournament to-day and i reckon "'I shan't manage to get to it to-morrow either. "'It closes to-morrow, doesn't it?' "'In consequence of the unprecedented success "'of the grand military tournament,' quoted the interviewer, two extra night performances will be given on Monday and Tuesday.' "'Just so,' assented the humorist. "'But Monday and Tuesday night I'm engaged to give my at-home, you see.' I hope your cold will be better by that time. When did you catch it?" Mark Twain replied that he had caught it in the train coming from Benares. It was the old story—a draft was playing upon him, but he could not make up his mind to shut the window, and while he was trying to form his resolution he fell asleep, and the mischief was done. This naturally led up to a question as to his experience of Indian railways. How do you find, Mr. Clemens, that Indian railway journeys compare with similar journeys in the States? I find them very comfortable. I don't know what it may be like traveling straight through from Bombay to Calcutta, but there is certainly nothing to complain about in the journey from Bombay to Allahabad. Asked what his impressions were of the country as he was traveling through, Mark Twain said, I saw, for the most part, great plains, like the prairies you pass over in the States. On the whole, I should say, Indian scenery is the more interesting of the two. Still, from Benares west, and from Missouri to the Rocky Mountains, you get very much the same kind of rolling, grassy plains. In India there are more trees which relieve the monotony of the landscape. Now and then, it is true, I saw deserts such as those which lie behind the Rockies.' "'You have just come from Benares. Would you mind?' "'Certainly,' replied Mark Twain, knitting his brows." and speaking with more than his usual deliberation, I think Benares is one of the most wonderful places I have ever seen. It has struck me that a Westerner feels in Benares very much as an Oriental must feel when he is planted down in the middle of London. Everything is so strange, so utterly unlike the whole of one's previous experience. The Brahminy bulls, for example, how did they behave themselves? Those that I saw—very fine-looking cattle, too, said the humorist with a sly twinkle—were peaceable enough. They certainly had a fine, lordly way of going where and taking what they liked did you ever have to make room for them well yes i will make room for a bull any time brahmin bull or not very different creatures these from the poor starved cows you see in the villages it's a wonder to me how these animals managed to keep on their legs we went to see a recluse continued mark twain a man who is worshipped for his holiness from one end of india to the other on the way we saw various images of this saint and when i saw him coming out of his hut i at once recognized him from the really excellent likenesses which these images afforded oh, look here this is a portrait of the man, and this is his book. He showed the interviewer the book. It was the Vedic translation by Sri Swami Bhaskara Nan Saraswati, with a photograph of the translator as a frontispiece. The holy man is represented sitting cross-legged and scantily clothed. He is said to be over sixty, and is certainly a well-preserved man, with a keenly intellectual face the Englishman representative remarked on this. "'Yes,' said the humorist, "'that man started with a grand head on his shoulders, and after thinking and reading and improving upon his initial advantages, he came to the conclusion that the greatest object in life is that.' He pointed to the photograph, but neither in mockery nor contempt, it may surprise his many readers but when mark twain is serious he is very serious he described in graphic language how he stood at the hut of the hermit and wondered what there was in him to worship suddenly a man came up who had traveled hundreds of miles for this very object as soon as he approached near enough he prostrated himself in the dust and kissed the saint's foot i had never realized till then what it was to stand in the presence of a divinity because mark twain pursued with great animation he is a divinity not even an angel at the age of seventeen i am told he renounced his family ties and embraced the asceticism in which he has lived these forty years and over. And what effect have these practices had upon him? Is there anything peculiar in his voice, his talk, or his actions? Nothing at all. It is just as though you had taken a very fine, learned, intellectual man, say, a member of the Indian government, and unclothed him. There he is. He is minus the trappings of civilization." He hasn't a rag on his back, but he has perfect manners, a ready wit, and a turn for conversation through an interpreter. Turning to the fly-leaf of the book, Mark Twain pointed to certain Sanskrit signs and relapsed into the humorous vein. "'That is his name,' he said. "'He is so holy that before his name can be written it must be repeated.' a hundred and eight times i thought that too much even for a god i made a hundred and four times do we traded autographs i said i had heard of him and he said he had heard of me gods lie sometimes i expect on the contrary it is extremely probable that your books may have cheered him up in his loneliness Mark Twain laughed. <laughs> Hardly, because they would require to have been translated into Sanskrit first. In that case, Sanskrit is m- almost the only language, I should suppose, in which they have not appeared. This face, said the humorist, again regarding the portrait, is a strongly legal one, is it not? You have heard of W. M. Everts, formerly Secretary of State— and one of the greatest minds America has ever produced. Well, this face, at first, reminded me strongly of Everts, but when I looked into it, I found that it resembled the face of another noted American, who was Dr. DeWitt Talmage. but the head is more intellectual than that of Talmadge, the subject of caste, the humorist proceeded in reply to further inquiries seems to me a great mystery it's a fascinating mystery anything more uncongenial to the western mind and training could not be conceived when i am told that this man will not drink out of that man's lota water jug because if he does so he will be defiled these are simply so many words to me. I can't grasp the idea. When, again, you say that the man with a special cord round his neck is a Brahmin and twice born, and that because of the cord, and what it implies he is to be grovelled before, I ask how is it? and i can't for the life of me imagine when too i see a hindu the very man perhaps who fears defilement so much through the other man's lota when i see him going down to the muddy filthy ganges and washing himself in and drinking out of water only fifteen yards away from where a dead body is lying i can't help thinking he is at least sincere that i believe has never been denied you read about these things said mark twain but here you see them actually going on before your very eyes you get a glimpse of what india was in the far-off days before the british power was heard of i take it however that you as a westerner and particularly as an american are more interested in the progress which the country has made in various directions under british government than even in the antiquities of benares that is not so with a decided shake of the head i have no hesitation in saying that in all my travels i have never seen anything so remarkable as benares or any body so wonderful as that recluse these modern improvements have been familiar to me for years but such an experience as the other is only met with once in a lifetime not that of course i or any one else can deny the obvious advantages which the british have conferred on india WHEN ONE LOOKS AT THE INDUSTRIAL AND EDUCATIONAL ACTIVITY WHICH HAS BEEN SET IN MOTION ALL OVER THE COUNTRY, AND WHEN ONE CONSIDERS ITS SECURITY AND PROSPERITY, ONE CANNOT HELP COMING TO THE CONCLUSION THAT THE BRITISH GOVERNMENT IS THE BEST FOR INDIA, WHETHER THE Hindus OR MOHAMMEDANS LIKE IT OR NOT. They themselves are generally willing to acknowledge it as a benefit. "'I can quite believe that,' said Mark Twain. "'I have myself heard it from the lips of members of both communities. It is my belief that in the development of the world the strongest race will by and by become paramount, the strongest physically and intellectually.' NOW IF WE LOOK ROUND UPON THE NATIONS, WE FIND THAT THE ENGLISH RACE SEEMS TO POSSESS BOTH THESE QUALIFICATIONS. IT HAS SPREAD ALL OVER THE EARTH. IT IS VIGOROUS, PROLIFIC, AND ENTERPRISING. ABOVE ALL, IT IS COMPOSED OF MERCIFUL PEOPLE, THE BEST KIND OF PEOPLE FOR COLONIZING THE globe. Look, for instance, at Canada. Look at the difference between the position of the Canadian Indians and the Indians with whom the United States government has to deal. In Canada, the Indians are peaceful and contented enough. In the United States, there are continual rows with the government, which invariably end in the red man being shot down and to what cause mr clemens do you attribute this difference i attribute it to the greater humanity with which the indians are treated in canada in the states we shut them off into reservation which we frequently encroached upon then ensued trouble the red men killed settlers and of course the government had to order out troops and put them down if an indian kills a white man he is sure to lose his life but if a white man kills a redskin, he never suffers according to law is not the negro difficulty somewhat allied to the red indian question no doubt but i am of the opinion that in course of time that difficulty will settle itself the negroes at present are merely freed slaves and you can't get rid of the effects of slavery in one or even two generations but things will right themselves we have given the negro the vote and he must keep it is there then any likelihood of intermixture not the slightest the white and the black population, however, will in time learn to tolerate each other and work harmoniously for the common good. They will coexist very much as the different races in India have done for centuries. You have then been struck by the distinctive races who inhabit the continent of India? One cannot help that take the parsis in bombay what a fine race they are how intelligent how accomplished how proficient in english i must say the same however of most of the native princes we saw notably the Gekwar of baroda and my wife tells me that the women are equally proficient have you yet come across the bengali Babu? no said mark twain looking as though he had reserved his brightest smile for this question not yet in the flesh but in literature can i ever forget him he flaunted the immortal biography of onukul chundur mukherjee in our representative's face i am renewing my acquaintance with this book he remarked i read it when it first came out but have not seen it for years now I am coming back to it with fresh zest. And yet, Mark Twain said, growing grave again, and yet it is astonishing to recognize the fluency of the writer. Here is one sentence which in expression and construction is faultless English. Yet in the next, Mukherjee tumbles into bathos it is more remarkable even than it is funny. Mark Twain certainly had a shocking cold. The Englishman representative could not help noticing it, intent though he was upon the humorist's words. He had been fatigued, too, by the previous night's journey, and taking pity upon him on account of both these considerations, the interviewer shook hands and departed. End of interview number 109, read by John Greenman